This week we are continuing um, in our abide. Uh, last week we talked about a little bit about what it means to abide, um, kind of a little bit of a Christian ease term. Uh, sometimes we can use some terms that really we only use in the church, and we fail to realize that nobody else actually knows what we're talking about. And so we kind of broke that down a little bit last week. Uh, abide meaning really to remain, to, to uh, reside with. Uh, so uh, we talked about to abide means to continue with the Lord. And so um, if, you weren't, if you didn't catch last week's, I'd really encourage you to go back and watch that because a lot of what we talk about in the coming weeks won't make a whole lot of sense unless you understand really truly what it means to abide. Uh, the reality, there are many people who attend church who do not abide. And to abide is to be in relationship with Jesus, to be a Christian. Uh, and so... Um, uh, we have this false assumption sometimes that um, you can be a Christian and not abide. Uh, you can kind of come in and out of uh, Jesus' relationship and pop in every now and then and, and kind of feel guilty sometimes like, oh, I know I should abide, but I really don't. I really haven't mastered that yet. And it's like, well, then you're not a Christian if you're not abiding. To be connected to the true vine is, to be, is, to, is salvation. And so, uh, first we need to abide. First we need to be connected to the true vine. And as we do that, um, if you are connected, then the rest of what we'll talk about makes a lot of sense. If you're not abiding, then you might, you might be tuning out the next couple of weeks because it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, the rest of the metaphor Jesus uses doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you're not connected to the true vine. Uh, what we're going to do over the next three weeks, actually is we're going to look at the different aspects of the John 15 metaphor that Jesus uses. Uh, we're going to look at three specific roles, the vine dresser, the true vine, and the fruitful branches. Um, those are three uh, pretty important parts of the metaphor Jesus uses. Uh, and what it is, is basically going to be a look at the different aspects of the Godhead at work in the metaphor. The vine dresser being the father, the true vine being Jesus, and the branches, the fruitful branches, is really, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit through us, because we cannot be fruitful branches without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, that's kind of what we're going to be diving into the next couple weeks. Uh, but in order for us to get a better understanding of the vine metaphor, uh, we really need to understand the workings of a vine dresser of a vine and the branches. Um, most of us probably don't know a whole lot. Anybody here an expert on raising a vine and, and vineyard work? No, nobody here is a true expert in that role. So uh, see the original audience that Jesus was speaking to in John 15, they would have understood uh, and they would have known a lot more about what Jesus was talking about, about up, the upkeep of a vine, of a vineyard, than your average day person today. Uh, most of us probably aren't very uh, tuned into the inner workings of vineyard uh, work because it's not our main export. It's not our main industry. Uh, now, if I were to talk um, you know, to do boys about powdered metal manufacturing, a lot of people would be tuned into that because that's actually one of our main industries in Dubois. Uh, if I was to talk about other things that are relevant to our culture, then you'd be a lot more tuned in. You'd understand the metaphors. Uh, for some of you, when I use a sports metaphor, it means a lot. To others, you're checked out because you don't follow sports. It doesn't mean a whole lot to you, um, which is one of the reasons I don't use a lot of sports metaphors because... 
First off, I just don't care about sports. Uh, second off, uh, a lot of people don't get them because if I'm using a football metaphor, some of you couldn't care less about football. So uh, when Jesus talks about the vine, though, this is a main export of Israel. Most, you know, if, if, when he talks about sheep or when he talks about vineyard work, this is stuff that's, that's near and dear to their hearts because most of the culture was either involved in that work or they were at least pretty familiar with the work. So for us to understand fully what Jesus is talking about, we have to do a little bit of work. We have to do some background work to understand what some of these meanings that would have been commonplace for the people, we have to do a little bit more uh, investigation to understand that. Actually, even the temple incorporated uh, the vine theme into it. Most of you probably couldn't draw the temple if you were forced to, um, even a basic description, uh, be, because we just don't focus on the temple a whole lot. But for the people in Jesus' time, the temple was a big, important part. Uh, and if you actually go back into the Old Testament, uh, God spends a lot of time. If you've ever read your Bible through in a year, you're probably guilty of skimming some of the portions of the temple when he's given all the measurements and all of the descriptions of the gold and the artwork and all of this. Honestly, I skip it just about every year. I just kind of skim through it because it's really not meant for uh, you know, deep spiritual um, work unless you're doing some actual hardcore research into it. Uh, but it, there's a very specific way it was designed. And uh, the temple of Jesus' time, um, there was a great golden vine that hung over the entrance to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the temple in Jerusalem is kind of like that's where you wanted to be. That's where you worshiped God was the temple in Jerusalem. So everybody that went there, they would have been very aware of what the temple looked like in Jerusalem. Uh, if you know Josephus, if you've done any biblical research, you've probably come across Josephus. He was a famed historian of, that, of Jesus' time, and he wrote of the temple. This is a quote from something he wrote. The gate opening into the building was, as I said, completely overlaid with gold, as was the whole wall around it. It had, moreover, above it those golden vines from which depended great clusters as tall as a man. So I don't know what your mental picture of the temple is, but imagine as you're entering into the temple, there's this vineyard work, artwork over it. And in that artwork are grape clusters as large as I am. Now, that's pretty ornate. That's pretty intense. So this imagery was something they were very familiar with, uh, very, very common to the people of Jesus' time. Uh, it's also a theme that runs through the whole Old Testament. If you read through your Old Testament, the vineyard metaphor or imagery uh, is pretty prevalent. Jeremiah 2.21 says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Frequently in the Old Testament, the Israelites are likened to a vine which produced fruit not consistent with the character of God. You get this uh, idea that God has been consistently and constantly trying to cultivate Israel, the Hebrew people, into a fruitful nation, a nation that produces the fruit which is congruent with who God is, a, a fruit that is of God and consistently failing in that endeavor. Obviously, the failure is not on God's part. He's doing his part, and yet the Is Israelites are not doing what they're supposed to. Isaiah 5.4 is, is uh, one of them, those main verses. 
What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now, if you're not familiar with um, those who work in vineyards, wild grapes are not what you want. They don't taste good. They're useless for wine. They don't make very good anything. Um, They might be all right to eat, but certainly not the kind of fruit you're going for. You want a well-cultivated grape. So, uh, because most of us, um, I, don't, I didn't see any hands when I asked for experts on vineyard work, uh, because most of us are unfamiliar with what it looks like to uh, upkeep a vineyard, we're going to do a kind of a deep dive into some of this metaphor so we fully understand what it means that, that God the Father is our vine dresser. We're going to uh, look at today what is a vine dresser and how it applies to our relationship with God the Father and His role in our constant and continuing abiding. So Jesus clearly indicates God the Father as the vine dresser. Um, John 15, 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So, pretty common there. Now, if you're following along in your own translation and you don't see the word vine dresser, uh, other translations will use the word gardener, or they'll use vineyard keeper, or husbandman, if you're a KJV person. You're familiar with the term husbandman. Um, so all these terms basically mean the same thing. It's the, it's the individual who was in charge of the vineyard, the one who either owned the vineyard or uh, was responsible for everything that happened within the vineyard. God the Father plays this role in our abiding. He's in charge of the vineyard. He oversees every aspect of it. If something goes wrong, the vineyard keeper is responsible. If something goes right, the vineyard keeper is responsible. Everything goes back to him. Um, this individual uh, was responsible for overseeing every aspect to ensure the optimal conditions for growing the perfect fruit. As you can imagine, if you were somebody who owned a vineyard and maybe you didn't know a whole lot about it or you weren't an expert in it, you would try to hire the best uh, vine keeper uh, that you possibly, or the vine dresser that you possibly could uh, to ensure that your product was the best. So first and foremost, a vine dresser uh, would focus on the preparation for the vineyard. Um, This was pretty important. Clearing the area and preparing the soil was very important before you planted a vineyard. If you just decided to plant a seed somewhere, most of any of you that are gardeners, you know, that's a pretty important part. You can't just start throwing seeds down and expect to have a great um, harvest or crop or flowers if that's what you're going for. Um, so clearing the area, preparing the soil is very important, which brings us, we have a couple takeaways today that I want us to walk away with, and this is our first one. The circumstances God has and will grow you in are ideal for the fruit He wants to grow in you. I'll say it again. The circumstances God has and will grow you in are ideal for the fruit He wants to grow in you. Every single one of us has a different set of circumstances. And it is so easy, especially in the church, to look around and compare 
our circumstances to others' circumstances and try to make spiritual implications because of that. When in reality, God has prepared our soil, our circumstances differently from every person because the fruit He intends to grow is different in every single one of us. It's very specific to us. Some of us grew up in Christian homes and environments. Some didn't. Some of us are experiencing tremendous blessing and favor right now. Some aren't. Some of us are experiencing hardship and trial in our life. Some aren't. Granted, now, some of our circumstances are the results of our poor decisions. That can happen. Sometimes we're experiencing hardship or trial simply because we've made some really poor choices or decisions. But there are times that we find ourselves in certain circumstances that are not favorable and we wonder why God has allowed it or why he is allowing it. If you've never been there as a Christian, you're probably either holier than I am or um, maybe not so much um, wondering why. Why are bad things happening to me? I, God, I'm following you. I'm, I'm serving you. I'm, I'm going to church. I'm doing the right things. I feel like I'm checking the right boxes. So why, are, why is blessing and favor not being poured out on my life? We might even compare our circumstances to others and wonder if we've done something wrong to deserve it. I don't know if you've been there. I certainly have. In my walk with God, I, I, some bad things are happening or life's not going exactly how I want it to. And I just assume, oh, okay, this is because I've done something wrong. This is because I've sinned. That's why bad things are happening to me. Now, we're not going to do a, a, a deep dive into this, but for most of us, we will automatically attribute some of the characteristics of our earthly father to God, the Father. And so for me... My dad was kind of always looking for a reason to discipline us, uh, and so I kind of view God that way sometimes. I can, if I'm not putting effort into not doing it, I will, I will view God as looking for reasons to discipline me. Or when something bad happens, it's like, yep, that must be because of a sin, that must be because of something I did wrong. When the reality is, sometimes it's the preparation for the fruit God wants to grow in us. That's why tough things are happening any, how many of you ever played a sport, a group sport? Yeah, how many of you loved the rigorous practices? No, no not so much probably. Uh, how many of you loved winning or being victorious in a sport? Yeah, okay, probably not a whole lot of people love losing. Uh, for me, I grew up in a town where football was its like, own religion, and our practices were horrific, and throwing up at practice was just kind of a commonplace thing. I learned what foods I don't like throwing up by going to practice. Uh, and so, but, and I, so I hated practice, but I really liked winning. Um, we don't always enjoy the preparation for success as much, nearly as much as we enjoy the success. Uh, and sometimes God is going to allow us to go through difficult times to prepare us. Uh, looking at my own past, uh, I grew up, i uh, give you a little insight into my past. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, I grew up in as, as about as opposite as you can get from a Christian home. And I uh, actually moved out from my house when I was about 14, moved in with my grandparents. And both my dad and my grandfather were very similar. Uh, neither one of them ever, I, I don't have any recollection of ever hearing my dad or my grandfather say, I love you or good job. So I grew up without any male figures in my life ever affirming me. And so 
I can see now as I look back on it, that's something I actually thank God for, for preparing the soil the just the right way because I found as a pastor, it's really beneficial to have a personality that doesn't thrive or need positive affirmation. So um, if you don't know, being a pastor sometimes is a little difficult. <laughs> People aren't happy with you sometimes. Uh, and I found that to be a fruitful thing that God has done. He has prepared the soil in a way that I don't need that. I, I don't have that people-pleasing spirit that some people have. On the negative side of that, uh, if you've known me long enough, you know encouragement is not one of my gifts. Uh, I'm not great at encouraging, and there's no shocker there. I never experienced it growing up, and so I'm not very good at it there. So I look at the positive fruit of that as one thing being I have thrived in environments where the affirmation is low. It's also made me incredibly dependent on God in order for my affirmation, but also to teach me how to encourage, how to affirm other people because I didn't learn it growing up, and so I've needed, I've depended on the Holy Spirit to empower me to do that. So, um, all that to say, if I'm ever encouraging you, just know that's the Holy Spirit, it's not me. Uh, it takes a lot of work for me to do that. Um, I'm much more critical than I am uh, in, encouraging because that's what I experienced. But I look back at my past, at all of the things of my past, and that's just a small picture into one of the aspects. But I look at the way I grew up. Um, wasn't good. Uh, a lot of times, very stressful, um, hurtful, a lot of abuse, things like that. But I can look at that and say, okay, God, this is how you prepared the soil for me. This is how you prepared the person I was going to become, the type of pastor I would become, the type of husband I would become, the type of father I would become. This is the soil you decided was right for these circumstances. You allowed these things, and so there's something there. There's something in that hardship, that trial, those tears, that frustration, all of that. God is going to redeem. That's His goal was always to redeem that. And so a takeaway from that this morning is take time to thank God for the circumstances he has allowed or not allowed to help mold you into the person you are today. There might be something where you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you really wanted this thing and yet God said no and didn't allow it. And maybe you were hurt, you were frustrated, you questioned God. Why wouldn't you give me this thing? It looked so good, it was a good thing and you said no. You didn't allow it. You might be angry with God for that. We don't see tomorrow like God does. God sees way in the, far beyond our earthly life. He knows exactly what is needed to cultivate us. See, if a vine dresser on this earth was able to see into the future and know the exact weather, the exact conditions, every aspect, man, he could produce the perfect fruit. And that's how God views our life. And so instead of, I hear all the time, I hear a lot of people complaining that they're always dealt a bad hand. Uh, oh, I never get, you know, the favor. I never get the blessings. I, I'm, I, you know, I never, if there's a competition, I never win. If, if there's a lottery, I'll, I'll, I'll be the last person that wins it. And we kind of speak this stuff over us that we're, you know, we always get a bad hand. We kind of disappointed with what God's given us. Maybe if you're experiencing hardship, if you're experiencing trial, ask God, what are you preparing me for? 
what is this fruit? What is this outcome you are preparing and you're setting me up for? So that's the ground preparation. Once the ground has been prepared properly, the vine dresser can begin the pruning process. Um, John 15, 2. I guess I should have showed you those slides. Um, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So what is pruning? Most of us probably aren't uh, consistent with pruning. Some of you are gardeners, so you actually know a little bit of this process of, of pruning. Um, I am not, but the definition of pruning is the removal of unneeded or unwanted things to increase fruitfulness and growth. Okay, so that's pruning. The removal of unneeded or unwanted things to increase fruitfulness and growth. So, uh, what you might not know is the vine dresser will prune the vines twice a year. This is any good vine dresser. There's two times in the year that they'll actually go through a pruning process of the vines. The first pruning happens in the spring. And this first pruning is a four-part process. We're going to walk through this because I think each of these has relevance in the metaphor that Jesus uses for us. So the first part of the spring pruning is the pruning of shoots which are growing too rapidly. Uh, Sometimes uh, the shoots of the vine are growing too fast, and what they'll do is they'll actually cut them back. 1 Timothy 3.6 says, of a, of a leader, an elder, it says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I see this often in churches where somebody comes to know Christ and they're dynamic or they're a good leader or they're very intelligent and so they're thrust into leadership right away because they're really good at something or they're really talented or um, just because they're a, they have a leadership personality, um, as soon as they get saved, the church puts them into leadership and they fail. Because the Bible is pretty clear here. Uh, Somebody shouldn't be thrust into leadership early in their Christianity because it's very easy to become puffed up and conceited. I've worked with many Christians who, you know, they've only been saved a short time and they already begin to think they know more than the elders of the church and they know more than others. And it takes time for even, it doesn't matter how old you are when you become a Christian, spiritual maturity takes time to develop as we develop it. And so this pruning, actually, uh, what they do is they cut back these shoots that are growing too fast because they know it's not going to end well. If we just let them go like that, they won't produce quality fruit. They actually need to be pruned back. In the same way, new Christians should be cultivated correctly before being thrust into positions that will ruin them or can do them harm. The second part of the process, the pruning of growing shoots to ensure they're not snapped off by the wind. So shoots that are growing, you don't want them to get too far or else when bad weather hits, they'll actually get snapped off and it'll create more problems and then they'll never be fruitful. Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. There's a preparation in the Word of God that it talks about. The, this is speaking about the armor of God, that we should do all things with the armor of God around us. And, and so this part of the pruning process is actually ensuring that those that are growing are growing in a way that they are standing firm, that they are protected against uh, the, the crazy things of this world. And 
Um, I've heard sometimes, you know, people, they come to know Christ, and they're, they're growing, and they're like, I'm going to take on this huge ministry, you know, endeavor, or, you know, I'm going to start going into really dark and evil places and, and try to minister, and then before long, they're right back into the, the throes of the world. Somebody, maybe they just came out of alcoholism, God saved them out of that, and they become a Christian, and they say, I'm going to start doing bar ministry, and before long, they're just another guy drunk at the bar. Why? Because they weren't being protected from the things of this world. It takes time and and maturity before we can endure the storms of this world. And God wants us to grow in Him the right way before we enter into certain ministries. We should never jump into something without proper uh, growth in God. The third part of that process, of the pruning process, the removal of some flower or grape clusters so those left can produce more and better quality fruit. This is the part of pruning that most people don't understand and takes the most expertise. Understanding, it's very easy to see, oh, that, well, that shoot's growing way too fast, let me cut that back. Or this is a growing shoot, I know that I'm supposed to cut this back a little bit. But this part of the process, this takes experience, this takes wisdom to know which flowers do I cut off, which grape clusters do I begin to cut early, because obviously that's not going to grow any grapes if you cut off the flower, you cut off the, the grape cluster to know which ones to cut and to remove to create the optimal conditions for growth. 1 Corinthians 10.23 says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. There are times when God is going to remove something from our life that we call good, that we think is great, that we think is, is good for us or beneficial to us or helpful for us, and God removes it, and we begin to question God. God, why would you take this away from me? Why would you remove this? That was a good thing. This doesn't seem to make any sense. Just like the vine dresser, an experienced vine dresser will go through, and they'll actually cut off healthy, vibrant, good flowers, good grape clusters, good fruit to make room for the ones that that are truly the best. They'll know the difference between those. And this truth uh, I I learned a long time ago, and um, it seems kind of common sense, but man, has it meant a lot to me over the years, is that God's enemy of our best is not the worst. It's good. That's the biggest enemy of God's best for our life. Because the enemy, if he knows he can't win, if he knows he can't keep us, from serving God, then his next best effort is to get us to settle for good. Because as long as we'll settle, we'll never experience God's best for our life. And there are times when, if, if you've not been there, again, you're way holier than me, where you're tempted to settle for good or very good, and God says, that's not what I have for you. I have the best. And sometimes we have to be really tuned into God to know when something is just good and not his best for our life. We've got to know when God wants to prune that, get rid of that, because that's just going to distract us. That's going to take away from what God really has for us, whether that's a job, a relationship. I can't tell you how happy I am that God has pruned certain relationships in my life so I can end up with Jackie and Killian and Kiara. What a blessing that is to me that that happened. See, if it was just about quantity of fruit, this part of the pruning process would be unnecessary. If all we wanted to do was get the most possible fruit, 
then pruning good flowers or good grape clusters wouldn't make any sense. God's not concerned with the, uh, with the quantity of fruit in our life at times. Sometimes we think all we got to do is we go to church, we check all these boxes, and that's what God wants for us. And God says, no, 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 that's not what I want. I don't want you to be involved in 15 different ministries. Get rid of a lot of those. This is what I have for you. But too often, not enough of us are being engaged in the church that, uh, yeah, they did statistics, they keep doing them, and I think most churches, good churches, 20% of the people do 90% of the work. Most churches, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. And so you have, uh, in those churches, you have people who are doing things that are good, but not God's best for them, simply because not enough of us are being engaged in the work of God, being engaged in what God has for us. So stick, for what, stick to what is God's best for us. Allow God to remove, to prune the things that are not the best so God can do the best in our life. The fourth part of the process, the removal, uh, I thought this was funny, uh, there's actually things called suckers on vines. I didn't know this. This was uh, something I learned in, in my research of this. But there's things called suckers. They're not actual branches, but they come off of the branches, and the only thing they do is they suck the nutrients out of the, out of the vine and out of the branches. First um, Corinthians 5.13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is something, uh, I love our church. I love that our church is so loving. And so this is probably going to be one of the harder parts for us to understand as a loving, caring, overly caring at times church is there are just some people who seek to drain us. There are things, there are ministries, there are people who will seek to, uh, for no fruit absolutely no fruit possible just to drain us uh, is, how, is what some people or some things in our life will seek to do. And God's going to prune away those suckers, those things which seek to only drain the church, individuals of the nutrients from the vine. Uh, for us sometimes, not, not nearly my personality as much, but for some of you, you you love to serve. You have a huge heart. You're very empathetic. You're very sympathetic. And when people are in need, you want to help them. You want to pour out for them. But some people will never produce fruit. And we have to be in tune with God to know when to say, I got to cut this off. Because this isn't going toward a fruitful anything. This isn't producing fruit in me. It's only draining me. And this isn't going to produce fruit in you. And God's calling you, telling you to cut that off. And that might be a person, but it also might be a ministry. It's one of the things that churches are not very good at, is looking at a ministry and saying, I'm not sure this is actually producing fruit anymore. I think we should cut this. I think we should stop doing this. I think the blessing, the favor of God left this ministry 10 years ago, and we're only doing it because that's what we feel like we're supposed to do. And so knowing when God wants to prune things like that takes wisdom and experience. So the second pruning, that was the first pruning, that happens in the spring. The second pruning happens in the fall. This is where the branches which didn't produce fruit during the fruitful season are removed and they're burned. Um, This is when they actually take off whole branches that either didn't produce fruit or 
an experienced vine dresser will know when they're, they maybe have produced fruit, but they're probably not going to produce fruit anymore. They get removed and they get burnt. Notice, as we said last week, what is the determining factor to whether or not a branch is kept? Fruit. That's it. That's the only thing the vine dresser is concerned with as to whether or not the vine or the branch is connected to the vine. If it doesn't produce fruit, it's not drawing its life, its sustenance from the vine. And so the fruit, again, is the evidence, not the goal. When the branch's goal is fruit, then that's where we get, uh, that's where we find a problem. If we just focus our energy into experiencing the vine, into being abiding in the vine, the fruit comes. That, that's, that's all the vine dresser's responsibility, not the branch's responsibility. John 15, 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. When we produce fruit, it doesn't take an incredible amount of effort on our part. It just our effort is to being tied into the vine. That's where our effort should be, not in trying to mimic fruit or imitate fruit, but in being connected to the vine. Remember, if quantity was the goal, the vine dresser would never prune the flowers or the grape clusters. He prunes the good so that he can achieve the best. Which brings us to our next takeaway. Pruning can be painful, but it is necessary for fruitful branches. This is something... um, the church has not been great at acknowledging, recognizing, or coming alongside of with individuals. Um, at times, the, when someone is experiencing pruning, we can often just say, well, that person must be in sin. Oh, that person must not be obeying God. They must not be living their, a righteous life because good things aren't happening to them. We created this false assumption that negative things happen in our life only as a result of sin or mistakes that we have made. And that's simply not true. It doesn't fit Scripture at all. Pruning happens to the most fruitful of branches. Look at Job. If you're going through our Bible reading plan, you, we just finished Job this morning. And what a clear picture of somebody who experiences pruning, experiences hardship, not as a result of sin or something wrong they did, but simply because that's what God was doing. That's what God wanted to do. And even Job doesn't get to question God. Job's friends don't get to question God. Uh, I love that when God answers Job, he doesn't explain himself. He just reveals a portion of who he is to Job. And all of a sudden, Job's like, okay, I have no more questions. I'm good. You didn't answer my questions in verbal way. He just experienced more of God. And that was enough for Job. He never, never wants to question God again. Job was a fruitful branch, and God was pruning him. He was experiencing hardship. Look at Paul. Paul was a pillar of the faith. He, he accomplished so much for God. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, 
Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of, me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Does this sound like somebody who's living the, the good life with God? Most of us, if we knew this individual, would say, man, pff, there must be some wicked sin in his life. Look at what God's doing to him. He must not be living righteously. I'd be tempted to think that. Because Paul's experiencing some pretty rough stuff here. It doesn't, he doesn't ex- seem to be experiencing the protection of God, the favor of God, the blessings of God. But this is the soil that God was using to prepare the fruit that he wanted in Paul. And for God, he doesn't need an excuse. He doesn't need a reason. We simply need to walk in what God has for us doesn't sound like the prosperity gospel to me. Paul doesn't seem to be preaching that to anybody. Look at all the stuff. Look at all the the terrible stuff I've experienced, and yet he just celebrates God. He doesn't question God. He doesn't count it as God being evil, which brings me to my next takeaway. God prunes our self-sufficiency to replace it with Holy Spirit dependency. This is an important one as you walk with God that we need to learn. God prunes our self-sufficiency to replace it with Holy Spirit dependency. See, Paul was a really smart guy. He would be genius level if he was around at this time. He would be the uh, most intelligent person in the room probably, in any room he sat in. And yet the things that God uses him for sometimes take advantage of that so God humbles him in incredible ways. Paul doesn't get to walk around the world saying, man, I haven't experienced a single hardship. I'm so holy, nothing can touch me. Paul says, man, everywhere I go, I seem to be in trouble. I seem to be in danger. I seem to get beat up. I get stoned. I get, you know, all these things happen to me. I get shipwrecked. God doesn't even protect me when I'm in a ship. And he's in control of the sea. And yet Paul acknowledges, this is, I'm just going to accept what God has for me. And he says later in that, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is not Christianity 101 right here. This is somebody who has walked with God, who has experienced the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, and he is able finally to say, and when I am weak, that's when I am strong. It's only when he has been humbled to a point most of us know nothing about, Paul's able to say, man, weakness That's where the Holy Spirit comes alive. Some of us, maybe we have a a small understanding of that. I would say I I maybe have a very small understanding of what Paul is saying here. It's easy to say it, much harder to live it. Much harder when we're in that dark valley, when we're experiencing what seems like the wrath of God in our life, to raise our hand in worship and say, praise God. Praise you, because in this place, 
in this dark valley is where I am strong. And most of us, aren't, we're not that holy, but that's where God wants to get us. It's to when we're in that darkest valley, we're able to say, Holy Spirit, I need you. That's where Holy Spirit dependency is cultivated in our life. That's where abiding really happens is when we experience the hardship. You may wonder why things that you thought were really, really good were removed from your life, whether that be a relationship, a job, family. There is a good chance it was so we would depend more on the Holy Spirit and less on us. Paul learned that. I might be really, really intelligent, but that's nothing compared to the Holy Spirit. And so he depends on God and not himself. So how is God pruning you right now? I don't know if that question has come up in your mind as we've gone through this series. How is God pruning me? What does pruning look like for me? I talked to you about the four-step process of pruning in the spring. I would say we're all in the spring pruning, um, hopefully. None of us are past the fruitful season of our life. If you're still alive, I would argue you're not past the fruitful season of your life. So how is God pruning you right now? See, if you're not abiding, you're not being pruned. And that should be a red flag. If you can sit there and say, I don't think I'm being pruned at all. That should be a concern. Because fruitful branches are pruned constantly, consistently, so God can achieve His best in our life. If you desire to be fruitful... Pruning is essential. There's no question. There does not exist a fruitful branch that does not get pruned from time to time. Abide in Christ. Because I promise you, it is better to be pruned than it is to be thrown away. I don't know about you, but I would way more experience pruning in this life than the fire in the life to come. And you might think, well, I don't know about this whole Christian thing because this seems kind of rough. I don't know about shipwreck, beaten, all this stuff, persecution. You know, if you really look at the gospel, I mean, the things, the, the, the salesman for the gospel is not really all that great when you're know, talking about beatings and persecution. And you should be happy when you're persecuted and all this stuff. But when you truly understand Jesus, a relationship with him, what that is, man, there's nothing that compares All the pruning in this life is more than worth it as we enter God's presence. If you know Christ, if you have a relationship with Him, you you can look at all the hardship you've experienced and the ones that we're pruning, not a result of our bad decisions. You're able to say it was totally worth it. I know for me, as I look back at my past, I told you, I have a very rough upbringing. And I'm able to look at that and say, God, thank you. Thank you for that. Because I see how it's produced in me, the kind of character, the kind of person you wanted me to be. I know if, I, I trust that if I'd have grown up in a nicer uh, household or a less oppressive household, I, I doubt I would be close to the person I am today. I needed that soil to grow in for the fruit that God wanted to produce in me. John fifteen five to 6 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. I would much rather be pruned than to be thrown into that fire. Remember, our last takeaway for the day. Pruning happens before the fruitful season can begin. That's an exciting thing. Because if God is pruning you right now, if you feel like, man, the vine dresser is hard on me right now. I am being pruned in, in painful ways. That should excite you. Because the fruitful season is coming. The best pruning always happens before the fruitful season can begin. And I'll be honest with you, this week God spoke to me in this truth and speaking that over our church. Some pruning has happened in our church because the fruitful season is coming. God has awesome things in store for us. And I believe God is going to continue to prune us as he wants to grow us. As the fruitful season comes, we will celebrate every bit of hardship, every bit of pruning that happens because the fruit is so worth it that God's going to produce. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the pruning you have done in my life, for the preparation of the soil, for the way that you have been the perfect vine dresser in my life. Lord, I acknowledge you've never made an error. That's beyond you to make an error. God, I thank you for the way that you have cultivated every aspect of my life to create in me the person that you want me to be. Forgive me, Lord, when I question you, when I doubt your process, when I don't trust in your ability as the vine dresser to see good fruit produced, when I try to run out and produce the fruit myself and try to accomplish it on my own, Lord, I failed every single time. Would you help me to abide, to simply remain connected to the true vine and experience all of the life, all of the the power that comes from that connection? God, I pray for each and every one of us. We would learn more what it means to abide that we would trust more in our vine dresser this week for the rest of our life, that we would trust you know what you're doing. We know the fruitful season is coming, and that is completely up to you. You are the one responsible for the fruit, not us. If we simply abide in you and get rid of all of the other stuff, the fruit will come. Would we put our effort into abiding? trusting that all of the other stuff will happen as we do that. Lord, I pray blessings over our people this week that we would remove the the suckers, we would remove the things which seek to just drain us of the life that you have for us. We would cut off the things which won't produce fruit that aren't good in our life and seek to abide in you this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great week. Abide, and next week we get to jump into the true vine.